If you have your Bibles, please open them to Matthew chapter 7. Come nearing the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as I've been preaching through over the last several months. And we pick up in verse 21, but before we hear the word of the Lord, let us pray. Father, you remind us that all Scripture is breathed out by you. It is profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help teach us this evening from your word, that you would speak. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, that he might be glorified in us. Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 7, be beginning in verse 21, says the word of our Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. What must... We do to be saved. That is the question for anyone who has ever lived. It's a question that the crowds in Acts 2 ask after they hear Peter's sermon. And Luke records for us that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 16, after Paul and Silas are rescued from prison, the Philippian jailer asks the same question. says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and all your household. See, this is the fundamental human question. We understand as a people that God is holy, that He has made us to reflect that holiness and bear His image, to live in a relationship with Him, and yet we've broken His law in sin and thus severing that relationship. We've rejected God. And because of that sin, now we understand that there's a coming judgment. That sin must be repaid. And so we need to know, is there any way to escape this judgment? How do we be delivered from it and brought back into communion with God? That is the question. It's before every human being. Now, some 
will try to answer this question that they, are, they seek deliverance by simply cutting God out of the equation. There's no God, there's no judgment, and so we can do and live however we want. Some, they, they, they want to keep God in the picture, but they escape His judgment by distorting His character. They think, well, God is loving, so surely He wouldn't punish me since I'm, I'm not that bad. It would be unloving of Him to judge me. They distort His character. Still, there's others who try to escape judgment, thinking that, you know, just a few religious exercises to beef up our, our moral rectitude, that that is what's necessary to get on God's good side. But as we have seen over and over and over again throughout the Sermon on the Mount, there is only one way into the kingdom. And it's not on the easy path of wishing away God and and wishing away His moral demands. The way into the kingdom is the hard way of seeing our own spiritual poverty, of mourning over our sin, of humbling ourselves before God and desiring, hungering, and thirsting for His righteousness. That is the way into the kingdom. It is not the way of cheap grace and easy believism where mental gymnastics can set aside the heart of the law. Rather, the way to the kingdom is submitting ourselves to God and applying all of God's law to all of our lives. That is the way to the kingdom. That is the message of salvation that Jesus has been proclaiming throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we come to this text this evening, I recognize that it is a text that has caused a lot of uneasiness, a lot of consternation, a lot of introspection for the church. Indeed, this is is a hard saying that Jesus gives us. We can't just gloss over it and think, well, he probably doesn't really mean that and you know it's not that bad we don't want to just gloss over this text but we do want to rightly understand it and rightly apply it and so my hope therefore this evening is that as we work through this we will rightly understand Jesus's intention behind this specific teaching and then describe the the self-deception that that is evidently taking place among some I don't want to apply it to our own lives in light of all that we know about the gospel of grace. And what does this text have to say to God's people who walk by faith? That is where we're going this evening. So first, again, what is the point of this passage? Well, obviously, on one hand, it is a warning to all of Jesus' hearers that There's a great crowd that is assembled on the mountain to hear Jesus teach. And so he's warning them. Much like the earlier warnings from the previous paragraphs, the explanation that there's only two paths to get, well, there's one path into the kingdom, there's one path 
to get into hell. Uh, there's these false prophets and there's good trees and bad, bad trees and we judge by their fruits. And in the same vein that he was issuing warnings in those passages, Jesus again is demonstrating that there are requirements for those who wish to enter into the kingdom. He's saying, if, if you want to reach the ultimate goal, if you want to answer the question, how do I be saved? If you want to reach the kingdom, then you have to do it according to the way that Jesus gives us. That's his point. So again, in these verses, he, he is telling us there are some who are in danger of not reaching the goal of the kingdom. There will be some who get to the last days, who get to the judgment seat of God, and who will be surprised that they are excluded from the kingdom. They're people who didn't follow Christ's commands. But, as I tried to lay out in previous sermons from this Sermon on the Mount, the purposes of these warnings are not to cause confusion and paranoia and undue burden and hardship on God's people. They're not meant for us to be wondering, you know, is, is there a secret meaning here that I haven't yet figured out? No, the purpose of warnings is to warn people of danger and to bring them away from it. Again, think about earlier this week. Had a giant ice storm, right? And our neighborhood is much like all of your neighborhoods, I'm sure. There's trees falling everywhere and cables that are strung across the ground. Uh, some surely power cables stretched across the middle of the street. And so I tell your kids, guys, it, it is not safe outside right now. That there's trees could be falling, there's power lines that could be down. It, it could be very dangerous that so you need to stay inside right that's a, that's a clear warning and if one of my kids decided well no I'm gonna go outside I'm gonna see for myself what, what would I do I'd put on my coat and shoes I'd run out and grab them and say you can't be out here you need to come back inside where it's safe but it's a clear warning that danger is present that is very different than if I had just given them a vague disclaimer back in November. Say, you know what, kids? You know, sometimes when you're not expecting it, you know, power lines could fall on the ground and, and you could get really hurt. So, you know, just be on the lookout. Good luck. Do your best. We'll see you later. Hopefully everything works out. You can tell there's two very different types of warnings there. And yet... We often come to passages like this and treat Jesus' warning much more like the latter scenario. As if Jesus is just wishing us luck to find out if we won the spiritual lottery. Or to find out if we got to heaven on a day where God's having a good day and so then he'll, he'll let you in. No, no, God is not capricious. He doesn't have good days and bad days, and we're not just rolling the dice to see, oh, I did my best, hope I get in. No, Jesus is actively working to save and keep 
those whom the Father has given to Him. So if he were to close this sermon by saying, you know what, some of you, you're not getting in. Good luck figuring out who it is. If he did that, he would be a terrible shepherd causing unnecessary hardship on his sheep. But no, Jesus is the good shepherd. So we know that he is speaking clearly and he is speaking deliberately. He, he has a clear message in mind when he gives this warning. This warning is meant for his hearers to guard against self-deception. But it's meant to be somewhat obvious that we're self-deceived once we actually examine ourselves in light of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And he's already showed us what he means and showed us that the type of hypocrisy, the hypocritical lifestyle that he's warning against. That's been the whole point of much of this sermon. So while we don't want to examine ourselves, uh, or we do want to examine ourselves, we want to see, am I measuring up to what Jesus has laid out for me? Jesus isn't intending for you to wonder if that, that one besetting sin is enough to disqualify you. He's intending for those who are sleepwalking into danger to be smacked awake and grabbing people by the collar and saying, you need to listen to what I've been saying. It's meant to wake people out of this stupor that they've been walking around in, going through the motions. That's the point of this warning. It is clear. It is deliberate. It's to wake people up. So, so having understood then that this is meant to be a clear warning, I, I want to look at the type of self-deception that is going on here that Jesus is warning against. So there's a few things. First, you, you look at all that these men, men and women, but I'll just, these men have going for them. One is they have a fairly orthodox understanding of who Jesus is. Right? They, they call out to Him. They call Jesus Lord. They do mighty works in His name. They're appealing to Him on Judgment Day. And yet, even in the midst of that orthodoxy, their understanding of Jesus is not sufficient to save them. There's something amiss. So there's a warning for us then. We can know our confession backwards and forwards. We can quote the Bible chapter and verse. Have all of the right theology. But right theology alone is not enough to save us. Think of what James 2.19 says. It says, You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So there's something more than just orthodox belief and understanding that has to take place. But these 
men seem to have at least some sense of orthodoxy and understanding of who Jesus is. We also see that on top of right theology, these men have a tremendous amount of zeal for the Lord. They're doing mighty works. They're casting out demons. They're prophesying. There's a tremendous amount of spiritual activity going on in their lives. They're probably doing quite a bit of good in their community. But it's not sufficient to save them. I think you could stand on every street corner proclaiming the gospel to everyone that you met. You could work every week in the soup kitchen or the rescue mission or the crisis pregnancy center. You could attend a revival and have your spiritual heart awakened. You could even stand in a pulpit and preach to people week in and week out. But those activities are not enough to save you. There is something that was missing that kept these men from reaching the kingdom. Now, before we get into that, I do want to pause and ask a question that you may be asking that I was at least asking. These are are false brothers, right? They're people that Jesus is warning, you're not getting in the kingdom. So they're, they're false Christians, and yet they have the ability to do things like cast out demons and do mighty spiritual works. So how, if they're not truly followers of Christ, do they have the ability to do that? It's a question I ask, maybe it's a question you're asking. Well, one, we see other biblical examples of those who are not a part of God's people who are still doing miracles and mighty deeds. Think back to Exodus, right? Pharaoh's sorcerers were able to turn their staffs into serpents, just like Aaron was able to do that. Or you think about Acts 19, the sons of Sceva. They were these Jewish exorcists who began using the name of Jesus to cast out demons. But they weren't followers of Jesus. They just heard, oh, there's some extra power here, so we'll use his name instead to cast out demons. We read in 1915 that they're trying to cast a demon out of this man. The evil spirit answers them, says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? So the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So there's men, they don't know Jesus, that they're not followers of Christ, but they're using his name. They're, they're doing spiritual works, even though they're not followers of Christ. So, so we see that these mighty acts sometimes can take place in the lives of people who aren't part of God's people. Two, we need to think, how are these mighty deeds being performed? Well, one, some of these mighty deeds could just be flat-out fakes. It's not been uncommon for itinerant ministers or healers to come to town. and In order to drum up enthusiasm, they plant fakes in the audience and someone comes up and 
fakes being healed to get everybody sort of spiritually enthused. So some of these mighty deeds could just be flat-out forgeries or could be that they're being doing these miracles through demonic forces. Again, Pharaoh's magicians, this is what they were doing. They were able to turn their staves into serpents because of their secret arts is what Moses records. Or think about Acts 16. A young girl is possessed by an evil spirit that gave her the power of divination. So, so it could be that these men are, are doing these mighty works through demonic forces. Or what, what I actually think is, is more likely, at least in this case, is that these are works that are empowered by God. God is, is actually giving them the power to do these spiritual works, but these powers, this power that God works through them, will stand as a witness against those who don't truly follow Him. Why do I think that? Well, think about Matthew chapter 12. We, we see the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're accusing Him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. By the power of Satan. And Jesus says it's, it is ludicrous to think that Satan would be divided against himself and Satan is casting himself out of these people. So then he asks him, but well, by what power do your sons cast out these demons? So, so what Jesus is saying, he's implying that your sons, the, the sons of the Pharisees, they're, they're doing spiritual works and they're doing them in the same power that Jesus is claiming to do them. Namely, that God is working through them to do this work. And that's what it appears that is, is happening in our passage as well. These deceivers are doing their work in Jesus' name. So it is most likely that it is God's power at work through them, even though they don't truly believe. And you ask, well, why is God working through these people who don't truly believe? I don't know. doesn't say why. God alone knows why it is that He's empowering these false followers. But in His wise, perfect sovereignty, He seems to be doing this through them. And, as I previously mentioned, to be given such power and yet still reject God for your own pursuits is surely going to serve as a more severe condemnation for these men. So for whatever reason God is allowing them to do this, for whatever reason He's working through them to do all of these spiritual works, the fact that they've seen God's power at work firsthand and do not follow Him is going to serve as a condemnation for them. They know better than most what God is able to do, and yet they still seek their own ends and their own kingdoms, which again ought to be a warning to us. They have seen it firsthand and yet still refuse to follow the Father. So we see these men have proper theology. They have proper 
zeal. They've witnessed firsthand what God is able to do through them, and yet they are rejected by Christ. Why? Well, a very common approach to this passage is to see all of the things that these men are, are boasting in, the things that they're laying hold of, and say, look, they're just trusting in themselves. They're boasting in all of their good works to receive salvation. So they're prophesying, they're casting out demons, they're doing mighty works. And they're coming to Christ, they're seeking acceptance based on what they have done. They've got a works-based righteousness, and so Jesus rejects them. And while it is probably true that they do have a works-based righteousness, I don't think that is quite the correct interpretation of this text. And I say that because Jesus tells us why it is the reason that they're rejected. Again, verse 21. This is not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Then in verse 23, he says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So see, twice in this text, Jesus gives us the reason that he rejects them. They don't obey his word. That's why he sends them out. So you see, there is a very stark contrast between knowing about God, like these men seem to know about God, and actually knowing God. Between understanding His will and doing His will. A contrast between doing religious activities and cultivating an entire life of worship to God. God does not want mere lip service. He does not want us to merely know things about Him. He does not want just simple religious activities to earn His favor. No matter how sincere and how zealous those activities might be, God wants you. He wants all of you. Total allegiance to Him. That is what it takes to get into the kingdom. And so that was the problem for these self-deceived followers of Christ. They thought, you know, just a little bit of this religiosity was enough to get them into the kingdom. They took the easy path. They had lives that were still characterized as pure lawlessness. That's how Jesus describes them. You're you're workers of lawlessness. They had had outward forms of obedience. On the outside, they looked good. But inwardly, they were still depraved. They still did not know and submit to God. I heard a wonderful illustration highlighting these differences a few weeks ago. And I won't say who it was because they don't like having attention on them. And I threaten them, but I won't. But if you think of 
your life like a pie. And if you like pie, we had a lot of pie this, this morning. Think of your life like a pie, and we tend to divide that pie up into different slices. You've got your, your work slice and your family slice and your just me time slice. And if you're like me, your, your Michigan State slice, which you throw in the garbage every week. And, and then you also have, you know, your, your church, your, your Christianity slice. And, and we, we kind of treat God as, though, okay, I'm going to give you that little piece, but the rest, you know, that's, those are my slices, and you're over here, and I've got to worry about all of these other things. Think, but if, as long as i got that God slice in there, I'm good to go. But in doing that, we are treating God like these hearers of Jesus' sermon were treating God. He, he's not just a slice of your life. God, you can't just treat God as just a tiny little part that maybe on Sunday I'll, I'll think about this and the rest of the week I'll have like a low-lying guilt or, or yeah, I recognize God is there, but I'm going to go about my day. No, God is not just a slice of your pie. God is more like the crust of the pie, the, the thing that holds the entire pie together, that gives it its shape, that, that touches every single aspect of the pie. God is, is meant to be Lord over all of your life, not just a tiny slice of it. Everything revolves around and depends upon Him. Everything that you do, you think through the lens of who is God and who am I. That is the type of lifestyle, the type of thinking about their place in the kingdom and God's reign over their life that was lacking by these men that were rejected by Jesus. And so inevitably, there, there's going to be the question that someone will ask in light of all of this, in light of these warnings, in light of my ongoing struggle with sin. How do I know if I'm truly saved? What is Jesus going to say to me on the last day? Is He going to say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will He say, I never knew you? We wrestle over that question. But where we get into trouble is when we begin evaluating our status as Christians as though there were sort of a, a sinometer. Think of you have a thermometer, thermometer, a, a sinometer. That, that your life, there's just this giant meter. And every time you sin, it goes up and down. And if you do good things, it, it goes down. We, just, we try to think of our lives as Christians as though there's this meter. And if it gets too high when we're dead, we're not getting into the kingdom. That, that we somehow disqualify ourselves when that meter gets too high. And the problem is that we don't know where that meter's at. It's entirely subjective and so we're always left worrying well is, is it too high today did I, did I do too much to add on to it and now I don't get in that type of thinking that there's just this gauge that if it gets too high you're rejected that is not how Jesus distinguishes between true and false followers that thinking that there's just this meter that is works-based righteousness that is thinking that if I do enough good things, I can get the meter down low enough where Jesus will accept me. That's not how the Bible talks about sin and salvation. 
Think of one way that the Bible talks about it. Think of Paul in Romans 7. Right? He, he's wrestling over the struggle that he has with sin. And he says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. See this war raging within Paul between sin and righteousness. That he wants to do good, but sin is just lying right there, enticing him and and waging war with him to do what is wrong. And he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So Paul, Paul's showing, he still has sin. He's still fighting this battle. He hates his sin. He, he wants to be delivered from his sin, but he's still waging the war. And at the same time, he recognizes that because he is in Christ, because he has been united to Christ by faith, because Jesus has atoned for his sin, that he is forgiven and can stand before God. Even as he understands his own sinfulness, he knows who he is before the Father because of what Christ has done. As Martin Luther said, The Christian is simultaneously justified and a sinner. So if if that describes you this evening, if you feel that same tension that Paul felt, you see your sin, you mourn over it, you want to be free from it, you want to fight it, you want to serve the Lord with all that you have, you still see the battle waging, but you want to keep fighting the battle And in the midst of that, you're looking to Christ to be the one to free you from your sin. That He's the one who has justified you through His life and through His death. He's the one who has the power to sanctify you and make you clean. If that's you, then you have every reason to believe that you are His. That you have been redeemed. That you will get to Him on the last day. And He will welcome you into the kingdom with open arms. Because you are looking to Him and trusting in Him alone. But, there might be another category of person here tonight. And you do need to hear Jesus' warning. Maybe you mentally, you acknowledge that Jesus is real. Even mentally understand the concept. Yeah, he died for my sin to take that away. You you understand the mechanics of justification. Maybe you even have some religious activities that you can point to. You attend church. You come to the evening service. You give to the offering. You pray. You volunteer. You serve. But besides that, Jesus doesn't make much of a difference for your life. 
Maybe he's just a small slice of what goes on day by day. You think, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good person. I'm, I'm pretty upstanding. I'm not like those sinners out there that, that really need to clean up their act. I'm okay. So in terms of salvation, there wasn't a whole lot that Jesus needed to do. Maybe a little work around the edges. That's you. Looking to yourself. Thinking you've got it all together with just some religious activity sprinkled on top. I need to warn you with the same warnings that Jesus gave. You are in danger of getting to the end of your life and hearing Him say, Depart from me, for I never knew you. What's the difference between these two types of people? One, they see their sin. They absolutely understand how wretched they are and that they need a Savior. They've been so gripped by God's grace that they've given their entire lives to following Jesus. Yeah, they're going to stumble along the way, but they are all in with their lives. The other person who just thinks that Jesus is just there to make me a little bit better, to give my life a little more comfort, that Jesus is just the password in to heaven. And he's not actually making a whole lot of difference in the way you live the rest of your life. So as we evaluate these two, I hope it is becoming clear how all of the discussion that we've seen about obedience and and disobedience, it is first and foremost a discussion about faith, about understanding who God is and who we are and what He has done. True faith, true understanding of all that we've talked about is the prerequisite to true repentance, which results then in true obedience, true submission. So without true faith, there there is no obedience, there is no submission. Without walking the gospel path of the Beatitudes that we saw earlier, your good works are simply a moral illusion. It's like putting a bandage on your chest when you've got a malformed heart and asking the doctor, doctor, am I going to make it? I've got these band-aids all over. Is that going to fix me? No, we need to recognize that we need a surgeon to get in there and fix the issue, not just some outward precautions. That is what Jesus has in mind. Faith in Him. Understanding who God is. Understanding God's holiness. Understanding our fall and God's grace. Leading to a life of repentance and submission. That is what Jesus is calling us to. Not religiosity. To simply pad the stats of our own moral uprightness. All of the warnings that Jesus has issued in this chapter, they're all pointing us to the very simple message of the Sermon on the Mount. You are a great sinner, but Christ is a greater Savior that welcomes you into His kingdom. 
And while the gospel is free to everyone, it will also cost you everything. Therefore, Jesus calls you. Give Him your all now so that you not, will not be rejected then. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your Word that it does pierce into our hearts. And I pray for anyone who has been sleepwalking through this life, that has been going through the motions, that has not truly understood their sin and Your grace, that You would grip them this evening. That they would truly submit to You. And that they would know with the full assurance of the Word of God that they have been saved. Oh, would You do this work. Help us look to Christ and follow Him and bring glory to Your name. We ask all of this in the name of Your Son, our Savior. Amen.